0: Welcome to The Buzz, I'm Christopher Conover. Southern Arizona is home to millions of acres of parkland and ranch land. That gives wildlife opportunities it doesn't normally get in other urban areas. This week, we visit some of our finned, furred, and flying neighbors. As the summer sun sets over Tucson, people often gather around local bridges to watch the nightly river of bats come out. Bat biologist Debbie Beescher says she caught 17 species at Sabino Canyon while researching her master's degree. But first, we discuss the marvel that is echolocation.
1: The bat makes the noise like I'm talking to you. They shout out a high-pitched sound. It's very similar to us using a flashlight. The light comes out of the flashlight. It's reflected off what is ever in front of us, back to our eyes. Bats use reflected sound, the echoes come back. They come back in milliseconds different, depending upon where the obstacle is in front of them. Their ears are offset. So the echo comes back different to the right ear than the left ear. And the hairs in the ear, you know, vibrate because of those echoes. And that is transferred to electrical information that goes to the brain. And they create a complete three-dimensional picture in front of them without color. They've taken bats into mazes of piano wires in a lab, which is totally dark, and they never hit a wire.
0: Bats eat bugs, but they also do a lot of pollinating. Is that their main importance here in the Sonoran Desert?
1: We have plants that are dependent upon pollination by bats, the columnar cacti. So the saguaro, the cardone, the organ pipe. We also have the lesser long nosed bat, and Mexican long tongued bat is the other bat, and they pollinate our cacti. And in the fall, they migrate over to the grasslands and they feed on the the paniculate agave flowers. As we lose our grasslands, that could be a problem for that species.
0: What are the threats to bats in southern Arizona right now?
1: When I used to give these talks, say in the 80s, I always spoke mainly of roost disturbance when people go exploring caves or going into abandoned mines, but since then we have a lot more loss of habitat and fragmentation of habitat. So bats living in trees under exfoliating bark won't be able to find what they need in a smaller group of trees than they would in a bigger forest. And when we pump water and it, impacts our riparian or streamside corridors. We're losing those big trees, cottonwood, willow, um, sycamore galleries. That um, reduces the herbaceous or grasses and shrubs that grow underneath it because that in in and of itself is an entire ecosystem. So losing those sorts of habitats is very negative to bats. Unfortunately, wind energy, which we perceive as green energy, but it's killed hundreds of thousands of bats, particularly at wind farms back east. It's only when the wind really drops to just a little bit, so the turbines are just spinning and insects are out, bats will start moving around and feeding, particularly along um, ridges where they're building wind turbine farms. And at first, they were finding dead bats, but there were no broken bones. It wasn't like they'd would they been hit by a turban. And when they did necropsies, they looked at the dead bats. What had happened is there's a, behind those turbines as they're spinning is a vacuum. And the bats fly into that, and it collapses their lungs, and they just fall out of the sky. So it's barotrauma. To their lungs, that's killing them, and there are bat biologists who are trying to work with wind farm owners because at those lower energies, winds, and so they're they're trying to get wind farm managers to turn the blades in those lower speeds when bats would be flying, and they call feathering it. So the turbine is the turbine is a. Um, perpendicular to the wind and it's not spinning. So the bats can forage. And then once the winds pick up and the bats would go find shelter, then they're getting their most electricity out of those turbines anyway.
0: What about white nose syndrome? I've heard a lot about that. Devastating bat colonies. Do we have that here in Arizona? And is it a yet question that it will eventually get here if it isn't?
1: That's the big question because It's caused by a fungus. It wasn't observed until the winter of 2006, 2007. And people had been doing winter census counts. And so when they went in and saw bats with white noses, that was a real dramatic change. And within about a year, once the fungus was established, they started finding hundreds of thousands of dead bats on the floor. And so it's killed over 6 million bats to date. It's been moving from New York through the cave, cave areas of uh, Arkansas, Kentucky. And this last spring, it was in 37 states. I've been working since 2009 in New Mexico on, on the bats of New Mexico and a microbiologist and I started swabbing bats to look for P. destructans, And We didn't really find any until we went into two caves in South Central New Mexico this last April, so April 2021, and the bats were infected. In Arizona, we're sort of deer in the headlights. We're expecting it within a year or two. We've already started um, swabbing bats just after hibernation because when they come out of hibernation is when they'll have the greatest deposit of the spores on them.
0: That was Debbie Beescher, a local bat biologist. The rivers of bats flowing out from under local bridges are hard to miss, but not all of southern Arizona's animal residents are so noticeable. The Gila top minnow, which is found in the Santa Cruz River, is only a couple of inches long, but at one time was considered the most common native species in the lower Colorado River Basin. Doug Duncan is a fish biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He says something else makes the hill-a-top minnow unique.
2: But is also the only native live bear that we have. So for those of us that had guppies when we were kids, or maybe older for that case, those are the same family. They also bear live young. They generally live a year. They can um, get really dense populations because of that. They're very prolific. Um, their threat is not that they can't produce a lot of fish. It they have other issues and why they have become endangered over the last fifty years.
0: It was listed under the Endangered Species Act. Why?
2: Yes it was. It was endangered in nineteen sixty seven to actually a precursor of our current act, but the story is very similar for the Helotopino as it is for our native fishes through this part of the United States, it was kind of a a one-two punch. First off, it was basically loss of rivers, streams, and springs through multiple things. Um, And for the Santa Cruz River specifically, it was pumping of groundwater, which pumped the water out from the stream, basically dropped groundwater levels to where it no longer connected to the stream. Fish kinda need water. There have also other streams that we've dammed. Usually in those areas that we dam where we've put lakes in, we put a lot of sport fish in. And they're sport fish from other parts of the country largely. And most of those sport fish, they eat other fish, including Gila Top Minnow.
0: When it comes to threats to the Gila Top Minnow over time, I assume poor water quality is also one not only lack of water, but the water that's there just isn't good quality.
2: Water being in the rivers is most important for them and other fishes, and certainly in the Santa Cruz River, both in the Tucson area and also in Nogales reach of the Santa Cruz River, because they're largely now supported by wastewater treatment plants. Has Well, it started cleaning them up a little over 10 years ago, but it's been a concern for decades.
0: Do the Gila top minnows act as a little bit of a canary in the coal mine, in this case the top minnow in the Santa Cruz?
2: Certainly do, and uh, the story of the top mineral of the Nogales Reach is uh, really illustrative of that point. They showed back up again after disappearing, you know, decades and decades ago into the Santa Cruz River, north of Nogales um, in the mid-90s. And the, the water quality coming out of the wastewater treatment plant was pretty decent, but as the number of people increased that were served by that wastewater treatment plant, um, they couldn't handle that amount of water. So the water quality got worse and worse over time. Um, additionally, there are also some spills in Mexico. There was a diesel spill. There was a sulfuric acid spill in the Mexican section of the Santa Cruz River, which are generally not good for top or any other fish. So they disappeared in the early 2000s. And then eventually in about 2009, I believe it was, the wastewater treatment plant in Nogales was cleaned up to address the issues. And we found Gila top again in 2015 in the Nogales reach of the Santa Cruz River during our annual surveys.
0: So if memory serves in 2019, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, accepted a petition to change the classification of the Gila top minnow, to threaten and, and maybe even remove it from the list. Why didn't that go through?
2: Well, we're still doing our analysis for that, but we hope to have that resolved sometime in 2022.
0: And is the ability to even request a downlisting, is it due to the fact that We've gotten some cleaner water in the river. We've been able to expand the current range, not the historic range of the hill-atop minnow. Is it these efforts that have allowed for this at least requested downlisting?
2: Yes, the actions in the Santa Cruz River and what has happened in both the Nogales and Tucson Reach are examples of what has happened for that species. So there are often multiple new populations reestablished in areas where the fish have disappeared from. Throughout the Gila River Basin, not just in the Santa Cruz Basin.
0: Do proposed things like the Rosemont mine just put the top minnow back into threat?
2: Potentially, does for uh, certain populations. And gone back and forth with other of my compatriots and fish biologists on oh, the potential impacts from Rosemont, and certainly, you know, our analysis of the proposed action we didn't think that the creek would be gone from the impacts of rosemont certainly there are people out there who disagree with our analysis i'm really more concerned about uh, additional people in the area and the use of additional water you know if we don't protect the santa cruz river and the water that's coming out of the wastewater treatment plants and people want to use it for something else you know if other people don't see a value of that water then Someone may say, oh, well, we need water over here. Let's dry the river back up. We don't need water there. But the other thing is the potential impacts from climate change in this area and the, the outlook for the things that might occur here give us a lot of pause on what might happen with a lot of streams and
0: springs in this area. That was Doug Duncan, a biologist with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. He's working with other biologists on research that could result in the hill atop minnow being no longer listed as endangered. You're listening to The Buzz. After the break, we'll learn more about work to keep wildlife and humans separate and jaguars. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. The wildlife crossing bridge across Oracle Road, north of Oro Valley, has been put to use at least 15,000 times by local wildlife since its construction. Carolyn Campbell with the Coalition for Sonoran Desert Protection says about 20 years ago voters passed the Regional Transportation Authority Plan, or RTA, RTA. It included funding for wildlife infrastructure like underpasses and overpasses.
3: So in the current RTA 20-year plan, which is a half-cent sales tax in different categories of funding, there's $45 million including, included in the plan that the voters supported that builds wildlife crossing infrastructure. So that just isn't a bridge or an underpass, as some people are familiar with. This also funds funneling fencing. Animals are smart enough that they're trying to get across the road and they just go to the first place they find to pass. So if you've got miles of fencing to funnel the animals towards one of these crossings, they use it. And the research has shown that not only do they uh, figure it out right away, but they learn it through generations, so they know where these crossings are. We have many, many crossings throughout the region, and they've been hugely successful.
0: How do you decide, or do the planners decide, where that crossing goes? A half mile one way or another, or on what section of road?
3: Well, it's not really the planners or the uh, environmentalists. It's the biologists who have been studying this for decades, and there are wildlife crossings all over the world. But over the last few years, there's a lot of uh, data done by biologists that have mapped out um, wildlife routes that animals are using, the habitat that the different animals use, and of course, prey base and predator base. Now, then when you get to the planners and uh, folks like us that live here, you kind of have to look at land use patterns and where the next subdivision is going to be built. So you—it's there's a little bit of that kind of the art that goes into the science. You've identified a general area, but then you have to see, oh my gosh, there's a Walmart that's being built there in six months. We need to move it a little bit. Um, And then, of course, you want to make sure that future planning efforts ensure that that habitat or that open space where you just directed a bridge or an underpass is going to stay, if not totally undeveloped, which is preferable, but uh, permeable for the different kinds of wildlife that it's being planned for.
0: I think probably one of the best known of these crossings is the bridge over Oracle Road north of Oro Valley, State Route 77, I think is what it's officially known at that point. How successful has that one been?
3: Oh my gosh. This was the first one built in the Sonoran Desert, but they're both video cameras and still cameras. And so, and in the underpass, they're also cameras. So, Arizona Game and Fish Department has been monitoring and recording the different wildlife that that use it. And they were not real sure the wildlife would be using it right away. It usually takes a while, but I think it was about a couple months after the bridge was built and the underpass as well, which is a a mile south of uh, there on SR 77, that they turned on the cameras and they were amazed. There were hundreds of a lot of what is using the uh, overpass. The Game and Fish Department, they were actually amazed at how much wildlife was using the overpass and the underpass. Probably the most common using the overpass and this underpass. Most common, mule deer. We actually saw white tailed deer recently, a mountain lion, javelina, coyotes. Bobcats and mule deer are probably the most common, but there's a lot of other animals that have been using it. Are the same ones going back and forth? We suspect it's a little a mix of new ones and, and folks that like to go back and forth, but uh, over 15,000 crossings have been documented in the last six years since they were built.
0: So what's the future for these animal underpasses, overpasses uh, here in southern Arizona? As you said, you know, lots and lots of use of the ones we have, and we certainly have a lot of wild areas. So what's the future?
3: In my opinion, we need to get more money in a future plan if we have it. There is the federal infrastructure money that um, is coming coming to town, coming to our state and our communities. And the federal government is also uh, really now concerned, and a lot of it has to do with climate change but money for wildlife mitigation to the local funding, the regional transportation authority money in this category for wildlife is almost totally expended. But as a person that's involved with the citizens committee for the next RTA plan, uh, I certainly hope that because of how successful this uh, has been the last 15 years, that there is another category and some more funding in the future plan, should there be one.
0: That was Carolyn Campbell with the Coalition for Sonoran Desert Protection. Learning how animals move is top of mind for many researchers. Ganesh Marine is a Ph.D. student at the University of Arizona, and he's looking at which mountain corridors certain animals, like jaguars, prefer. He's also looking at how diversity and movement are impacted by a loss of cooler environments we
2: lose the opportunity to have more jaguars because of climate change. And if we lose the rivers, the streams, the riparian areas, we're going to lose the connectivity between different mountaintops. And this could be critical for the maintenance of the populations on on the long
0: term. Marine says when you look out across the border, it may look barren, but it's full of life. When you have jaguars, this means that the environment is doing good. Because jaguars are carnivores, they require a lot of prey. They require a lot
2: of space, and this means that if jaguars are able to cross and if jaguars are persist in this environment, this means that the populations of ocelots, black bears, um, pumas are doing great.
0: One of the efforts to preserve jaguar habitat is the Northern Jaguar Project in Sonora, Mexico. It's about a hundred or so miles south of Douglas, Arizona. The project's goal is to not only preserve jaguar habitat, but also reduce conflicts with humans. It was started up by Diana Hadley, her husband and friends, in the early 2000s. The
4: reserve has grown from that initial um, 10,000 acres to 58,000 acres and all of the work that the northern jaguar project does is done in mexico we don't really do any work in the united states except of course part of our mission statement is that we would love to see jaguars returning to their former habitat in the united states along the international border and then we have a secondary program and the the secondary activity is called viviendo con felinos which means living with felines what that effort does is to write contracts with the working ranchers that surround the reserve. And it's added another hundred and maybe 15 or 20,000 acres of protected habitat because the ranchers sign a contract with us saying that they will protect and not harm in any way, any of the four felines that are found in that part of Sonora. And that includes the jaguar, the ocelot the mountain lion and the bobcat and they also sign as part of this contract not to harm any of their prey and so the prey base which is mostly white-tailed deer and javelinas has greatly increased
0: how hard was it to convince ranchers to not go after jaguars in order to protect their livestock
4: You know, it was much easier than it would have been if we were trying to do the same program in the United States because it's not politicized. At first, people were reluctant to join. In the program, what we do is we set out motion-triggered cameras, and so what we do is we give monetary rewards for each photograph that the cameras take of any of these animals. It brings in much more benefit than it does to kill the animal. There haven't been any depredations by jaguars that have been documented. There may have been one that we don't know about, but none of the ranchers have come forward and said, hey, I think this jaguar killed one of my calves not once in all the years that we've been doing this.
0: Why did you decide to do this in Mexico and not work with the border ranchers in, in Cochise County, Pima County, Santa Cruz County, here in the U.S.?
4: Since 1996, there have been either seven or eight jaguars documented in Arizona and New Mexico. I think two of that number were documented in New Mexico, but the There wasn't a real breeding population. And since we started this program, there have been seven or eight cubs that have been born either on the reserve or on these adjacent ranches that we know of the reserve, the terrain is like like a roller coaster. All of the terrain is up and down and up and down and there are cliffs everywhere and there are canyons. And so you have this huge variety of habitats in a small space. And it's an extremely difficult place to raise cattle because the vegetation at the lower elevations is so dense. Some ranchers have been very willing to sell their properties to the reserve.
0: You've had seven, eight cubs that we know of, as you said, maybe more. How many jaguars are living, do you think, in the reserve? And what's the line of success? Where do you say, okay, this is a successful project or we need to do more?
4: Well, we need to do more and we need to expand. the, the it, It's successful for that that area. But to to have a really viable, strong population of Jaguars, the the whole program needs to be expanded into many more areas. In the years that we've been doing this, I would say that we've had at least 80 individual Jaguars pass through this area. They don't stay put. So the better the habitat and the more prey base there is in an area, they're more apt to stay put longer. But essentially jaguars are 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 migratory and they have migrated the the seven or eight jaguars that have been in the United States, and they have all come from Mexico. So the reason that we're working in Sonora is because that is the supply point for for more wildlife coming into the U.S.
0: That was Diana Hadley of the Northern Jaguar Project, and that's The Buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Emma Gibson produced this week's show with help from Samantha Larnett, our production assistant. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.